details with that. Now, I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to get off stage. And uh, this is week five of Jesus for President. You may be like, Christian looks different today. What is it? He shaved his beard, and y'all can pray for him. He got beard lice. And they had to, that's a joke. He didn't really. But man, that's a, what a pretty face, Christian. Thank you for um, uh, sharing with us what's going on. Glad to see you all here. It's really nice to have you here in person. For those of you out online, and thanks for joining in your nice warmth of your uh, living room in your pajamas. And those of you outside, I saw a couple of propane heaters. Very, very smart. If you get too cold, come see what, uh, come check with the folks, our ushers and there's some space inside if you, if you need to do that. Um, but glad, glad, glad everybody's here. Really like this hour. We can all kind of sit and be uh, together. Just a reminder, we've been in a long series with some sub-series. Let me just kind of catch you up to speed. Where we've been, you'll see graphics everywhere. Jesus for president. Um, here's kind of the big idea of the whole series, and hopefully today we'll put some more feet to it. Um, during this time, I, I, I do believe we have a responsibility to vote for a candidate. But we should not place our hope in that candidate. And that's at the highest levels, presidential, all the way down to the local levels. Yep, we get to steward a vote. God's been gracious to us in a democratic republic where our voice actually counts and matters. And uh, so we get to participate in that, and I'd recommend that we do. But we should place a vote in a candidate. But boy, should we not place our hope in a candidate. Why, why, why? Because we should actually place our hope in Jesus. And that seems... Um, cute and a nice little tagline, but let me help you understand why this really, really matters. And the way that it really, really matters goes to the second part of what we've been going through, which is the Gospel of Luke. So while we're doing this kind of sub-series called Jesus for President, um, in fact, we'll do a new series starting in just a few weeks called Christmas Presents, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, more about presents, less about presents, you know, T versus C there. And, uh, but all we'll be doing then as well is just continuing to kind of chart through the Gospel of Luke. So we started in Luke chapter 1, and I've just kind of been working through. And so as a reminder, the Gospel of Luke was written by this guy named Luke. That's why it's called the Gospel of Luke. The word gospel just means good news. They'd have understood that as a military term. That would have meant that uh, wherever they were, they had won the battle. They were victorious, and everybody could enjoy and participate in the the fruits and the spoils of victory. And so that would have been a military term. And so the gospel of Luke is this good news that's available to people. By the way, all people. Uh, so that's what the gospel means. The gospel of Luke means Luke wrote it. And so Luke was a scientist and doctor, right? This is, this is, this is not folklore, myth, or legend. This is a real person in real human history. He had a medical practice. He was a Gentile, meaning he didn't grow up in kind of a religious faith system like Judaism, which would have been where Jesus's kind of family came from. He would have been a, in a kind of Greek kind of understanding of education. He would have been inside the Roman Empire. So he would have had a king and a kingdom. He would have had this declaration that he at some point in his life would have had to say Caesar is Lord. He would have used the economy of the day, which had a deity on the, the coins as Caesar, one of the local emperors, right? Or, uh, so you have this guy, Luke, he's a medical doctor who's hired by this other guy named Theophilus. So Theophilus is this rich and wealthy benefactor. We know this because uh, Luke refers to him in his sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, which is the story of the first century church, also captured in the scriptures. And Luke calls Theophilus most excellent. That term was kind of um, reserved for those in high Roman government authority. So we can deduce that Theophilus was a rich 
Roman official. Now, one of the limits with uh, one of the benefits of being in the Roman Empire and being an official is you had lots of power, lots of influence, and lots of affluence. But the, it came at a cost, and the cost was literally you tethered yourself to Caesar. You would declare on a daily basis, probably, that Caesar was Lord. You would see him as a deity, and you would see him as more than just a king. He would be the Lord, the boss of all things. And so Theophilus, in human history, real, hires this guy, Luke. Hey, Luke, you're bright. You know the scientific method. You've been educated. I want you to go and investigate this story about who Jesus is. So he hires Luke to spend years, if not a decade, going and investigating the story of Jesus. We can also surmise that neither Luke nor Theophilus at this point believed that Jesus was Lord. Right? So they are living in this Roman Empire. They had Roman kings, Roman, you know, governors. And now all of a sudden Luke goes on this really, really, really long investigative journey. In Luke chapter 1, he tells us that he went and read all the written documents he could find. All of them. That would have been some of the Gospels we know. The Gospel of Matthew and Mark were written prior to this. So Luke would have gathered those stories. He'd have read all the Old Testament. He'd have gone and searched through all the political writings and all the deeds. In fact, what's interesting is he's going to quote Jesus today who quotes an Aesop fable from 600 years earlier. So Luke was well-educated. And Luke would have gone and read all the documents. He would have gone and it says, sat down with all the eyewitnesses, meaning that people actually walked with Jesus. Not second and third hand accounts, but first hand accounts. We can assume that he went and sat down with Mary, the mother of God. We can assume that he went and sat down with the shepherds who had his angels appear to them and saw the, the concert of singing out in the stars, right? And so he'd have gone and gotten all the eyewitness accounts. And it said he, would have, he also went and listened to all the oral traditions. That means all the local pastors. All the local, you know, Kiwanis clubs. He would have gone and listened to the, the, the way of life and the, all the stories about Jesus and God and all these folklore, myth, and legends from Greek mythology or whatever it is. He would have captured all that. And he tells us in the Gospel of Luke, get this, that he writes all these things. After putting together this massive thesis, he gives us an orderly account so that we could have certainty of the things we've been taught. In other words, we can have certainty about Jesus and the things that Jesus declared. And here's what's crazy. Jesus actually declares that he is Lord. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John, Jesus' buddy, Luke would have sat down with and gotten the eyewitness accounts from, quotes Jesus as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me. That's not some dogmatic, closed-minded statement. It's just a specific one. Going, you want real life. You want to really, really enjoy that thing which you haven't found yet. You want real fulfillment. You want real forgiveness. The only way that happens is through me. You actually want some certainty in your life. The only way you get that is actually to know truth. And here's kind of the big aha that John tells us. Truth is not an idea. Right? Truth is a person. And what we know right now when we read the news, and you have all sorts of opinions of that, so do I, that it's hard to find real truth and real facts. Right now, everything seems to be a spin. And so the Gospel of Luke gives us truth. So he writes these things so that we may have certainty. And he goes about it a little long way. So Luke takes chapters and chapters to kind of set the foundation for a new king, a new kingdom, a new president. And so finally we get to Luke chapter 4 after he's done a lot of the groundwork. And he's now going to present Jesus who's going to make some declarations. And where we left off last week was Jesus had been kind of traveling around in Galilee, these little redneck podunk towns and these little bitty churches where he's showing up and reading the scriptures and they're 
news travels pretty fast, and Jesus arrives back in Nazareth. That's his hometown where he, he grew up, where his daddy was a carpenter, right? And Jesus shows up in the synagogue and gets one of the 10, 11 roles for that day of reading the scriptures, praying the prayers, sharing the blessings. And Jesus stands up and he reads. And what he reads from is a 700-year at that point, 2,700-year-old ancient document called the book of Isaiah. And he would have picked it up and there would have been 24 foot of scrolls, 10, 12 feet high. And he would have unrolled the whole thing. And he finds, because he's Jesus, the perfect place to start. And when he opens up and reads, what we see there is what Jesus declares his mission. And what I would argue is Jesus gives us his stump speech or his platform. Jesus presents to us what he came to do. So as we think about how do we vote, right? There's two different parts that we got to think about, right? As we think about, do we vote for this guy? Or do we vote for this guy, right? Or don't vote at all. You steward your vote by not voting, whatever it is, at the highest level. And then, you know, the trickle follows. We have two things we got to think about. We got to think about the biblical clarity. What does the Bible say about their platforms and their issues? And not only biblical clarity, but the practical consequences. What can these guys, what can our senators and our congressmen, what can our local commissioners do that actually have practical consequences? So biblical clarity, what does the Bible say about the issues, about what we're doing right now in America in 2020? And then what are the practical ramifications? What can these uh, men and women actually do in the next four years, next two years, next six years, depending on the election, what can they actually do to help bring Jesus' kingdom to earth? So the first thing we have to understand is what was Jesus' kingdom supposed to look like? What was his plan? And that's what's so beautiful. And let me remind you from last week, Jesus is now in his uh, hometown synagogue. It says it's his custom. He's been there a lot. This is custom. Week in, week out. He grew up going to these churches, uh, this church. Week in, week out. Now he gets a part and he stands up and he reads from this book of Isaiah and he gives us what his mission and his vision are for the world, for America, for New London Township, for East Nottingham Township, for Oxford Borough, right, for West Grove, for uh, Chester County. He gives us, and uh, he, I think he gives us something for the, you folks in Maryland too, but I don't know. It seems like he doesn't, yeah. So all those things, right? And so let me read to you what he says, and then it's going to be a beautiful morning. You discuss this. Definitely worth your time. Here's what happens. I'm reading from Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. If this sounds familiar, it's because I read it last week as well. Uh, and here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Got it? Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favors. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So Jesus gives us a picture of what he's going to do, and here's what he says. Got it up here. He reads in the book of Isaiah. First thing he declares, this is good news for us. We'll get to it at the end, that there is a spirit of the Lord, you know, coming and dwelling and anointing him as king. And here's what he came to do. He came to bring good news, victory, a declaration of victory. Who? To the poor. That literally means those who are desolate, those who have absolutely no options. Right? They, have, they have no choices and no options, and they, if something supernatural doesn't happen, life is over for them. That's one of the hard hang-ups for us, is we have lots of options. This is, these poor here declare those without options. And then it says it came to set, give liberty to the captives, meaning those who are enslaved, those who are in bondage, that word liberty the first time, there's two different words that we see here, means to be pardoned means to be completely forgiven. So this implies that the ones who are captive here is probably their own choice and their own decisions. They deserve the consequences that they get. These are incarcerated. These are based on their own choices, right? 
the captives here, there's this, the pardon means they deserve this, but he came to forgive those that did bad, did wrong, right? So he came to give liberty to those who are enslaved by their own choices, other people's choices. Then it says that he came to recover sight to the blind. It literally means to, to help people see the way that he sees, right? Because if we could see as God sees, I'm convinced we would do as God says, right? And so there's this idea that God set the world up, gave us eyes like his, Adam and Eve, who could see as he sees, and instead they go and they choose their own path. They get blinded by their own flaws and their own sins. So it literally means to recover the view so they could see what's going on and see as God sees. And then that means to actually bring a sight to the blind that's both literally and, you know, figuratively to help see the world as he sees it. Then again, it says to set liberty. This one's a little different. This means that he's actually placing people into himself. That's what that means. And we find our freedom by being covered by him to the oppressed. That's different. The first one you see captives, that could be by choice. Oppressed is typically done to you. So this is those who um, don't have a voice, those who have no influence, those who can't speak for themselves, right? So he acknowledges that there is a lot of people groups who have no influence, no voice, right? And then it says to come and set them free. And then he declares something. He says, this is the year of the Lord. This is really interesting because when we read the book of Isaiah, this is Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. So what it talks about previously in Isaiah is that there is going to be a suffering Savior, which, by the way, uh, Christianity is the only worldview world that has a Savior who takes on all the consequences of the world. Like he literally absorbs all the, all the sin and all the muck and all the mire and all that's uh, that, uh, required of us, right? It says the wages of our sin is death, but then the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. So all of Isaiah is this promise that there will be a suffering servant. And then Isaiah 53 is kind of the precipice or the pinnacle, the apex of that, where it talks about how he's going to be pierced for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes, the literal beatdown of Jesus, we're going to be healed. Right? And we'll talk about that at the very end as we do communion. And so that's what Isaiah 53, and then finally get to Isaiah 58 through 61 and, 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 and moving forward in Isaiah. And then it's all talking about this jubilee. That jubilee is this time uh, every 50 years where everything's set right. All the debt is absolved. The land that you would have or your parents or grandparents would have kind of turned over to the Roman government because they couldn't pay their taxes that are uh, all the bad decisions that would have been made those who are incarcerated every 50 years there kind of was this reset button and that was called the year of jubilee and so Jesus calls it the year of jubilee uh, he, Isaiah does and then Jesus declares it's the year of the Lord's favor that word's grace meaning God has given us something and I believe this is really interesting because what it says next here is this uh, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and that and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So he reads that. They're going, what does this mean? He's saying, this is the year of the Lord's favor. There's something, does that mean for us? Does that mean for those who are in prison? Who's this for? Who does it apply to? Right? Asking all those questions. And so they're thinking about this and this is what Jesus said. And he began to say to them, today, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what he's saying is all the implications of this 700 years early are applied to today. And what I would argue and talk about a lot is the, uh, the Bible's two things, both timeless and timely, right? Uh, timely meaning it was written to a specific group of people, Jews in persecution in those moments 
who wanted freedom, wanted affluence, wanted influence, wanted power, wanted authority, all those things, who had none of that. And so all of a sudden they hear this and Jesus is going, what Isaiah promised 700 years ago is now available to you today. That's timely, meaning very specific to the folks in Nazareth in that moment, but it's not just timely. It's also timeless, meaning the same exact words are just as important, just as critical, just as applicable today in 2020 right here in our in our community, right? And so when he says, this is uh, today, this can be fulfilled, that doesn't mean just for them. That means, and we got to see this today, this is available to you. Now, you probably don't believe it, or maybe you kind of believe it, or sort of believe it, like you're hokey pokey in it, like putting one foot in and believing it, taking it out, putting the other fo- foot in. And uh, the reason is because you've just had a lot of practical life experiences that you go, well, no, today's not today. In fact, you're pretty anxious about the, the next couple of days, anxious about the unrest. You're reading the news where towns and cities and businesses are being boarded up because of whatever's going to come on the election, right? All sorts of anxiety. You go, no, 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 no. Today, that can't be available to us. If you read the news, you know what's going on. And I'd go, what a perfect message for you today. Same message for them. And it's going to take us a while to get all the way around the barn. But this message is for you. And the promise is for today. That today, 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 right? Is the beginning of the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor for you. Now, can't place your hope in a candidate. You can place your vote in a candidate, but you can't place your hope in a candidate. The way by which we receive and enjoy God's favor in this year is we place our hope in him. So we're going to figure out how to do that, and it's not what you think, and it's going to be pretty surprising when we get there. So hang in with me, right, because I'm going to teach you how to enjoy the Lord's favor. It's going to be some very simple steps, right, and it can be available to you. So today. So that's what happens. The people here in Nazareth, they get some speech and so for them, they're going, okay, we understand what Jesus came to do. For us, we go, got some biblical clarity. These are things we got to figure out as we vote. Who gives us the best option to bring this kind of stuff to our community and our world? Or who gives the best options to give the church, give us as individuals the freedom to participate in these things? You got to sort through that. What's the biblical clarity? What's the practical consequences? You got to steward your vote. There it is, right? And so that happens. They hear it, and now, now what we're going to see is the insight to what the folks in Nazareth do. So you go, they just heard this. How do you think they respond? Probably not. A, I mean, maybe a crowd the size of what's in our sanctuary right now or in a little synagogue. How do you think they respond? What do you think they do here? What do you think they think when they hear this? You think they're like, hooray, let's follow Jesus. Let's worship Jesus. Man, let's do that. No, you got to remember, Jesus shows back up in Nazareth from a very poor working class family. He's considered homeless at this point. He's got some ragamuffin uh, followers who are all kind of rejects from Hebrew school. So he's got a few followers, and he is considered a homeless guy. He's not one that they go, wow, he's, he's got all of his life figured out. He doesn't have his own home or, you know, farmland. He doesn't own his own boat. So this is the guy doing this. You go, what, how are they going to respond to homeless Jesus who just came back as a 31-year-old guy who's been around, out and about for a while? How do you think they respond? Now watch what happens. This is pretty interesting. First part they respond with. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the, um, at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So they're whispering and going, wow, that was Jesus. That was pretty. Like, he spoke with conviction. Man, he went right to Isaiah 58 and then 61. How did he handle the scrolls? Well, I can tell that he's read them before. It seems like he could be a good, a good public speaker. There might actually be something for him beyond building chairs and dining tables, right? That's what we have here. And so they all spoke well of him. But then they said, or and they said, I don't want to add to it, don't say but. And they said, 
is not this Joseph's son? Wait, 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 wait. This guy's standing here, and it feels like he speaks with such authority and confidence. Like we can have certainty of the things that he's teaching, right? That's Luke's goal. And then they go, but is, and, and is this Joseph's son? Like Joseph the carpenter? Joseph, the guy who helps us put the doors in? Joseph? That's, that's who this is? I mean, this is, this, did he go to Hebrew school? Like, I mean, he didn't even, he hadn't even really said much. He, like, this is him? What? Right? And then he said, and he said to them. So, Jesus hears this. He sees what they're whispering about. Oh, that's good speaking. And then he sees their questioning, uh, even contempt, probably a little bit. Right, this is John. So, Jesus is going to peer into their minds. And this is what he says. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus goes, wait, wait, you're all here. You're all here. You've all shown up, and you're looking for something. You have an expectation. You are hearing me speak. You're impressed with those words. You're still wondering, that's Joseph's son. How in the world can you do this? But you've also heard the whispers of the miracles that have been performed in Capernaum and other places. And so let's just be honest here. You all showed up for the dog and pony show. You showed up to, you know, hear a couple cute words and see some miraculous things happen. That's what you want, right? And you're wondering, and he quotes this, physician, heal yourself. By the way, you can search through the scriptures. You're not going to find them there. This is not that proverb. This is an ancient Greek proverb. comes from the frog and the fox. It's um, an Aesop fable. You know, the ones with the morals at the end. And it's kind of a story. <laughs> Even the moral of that one is kind of this idea that there's a physician who comes and offers healing to other people. But it, they, they, the person who's often hearing that the physician looks all dirty, has dirty skin, has the infections, all these different things. And kind of the response is, hey, if you're going to offer something to someone else, Shouldn't you at least have that part of your life in order? Hey, doctor, if you're actually offering you are not healthy. How, like, hey, doctor, shouldn't you have your own life in order before you start offering other people's? In other words, what you're thinking, Jesus is saying to them, you're looking at me as a homeless guy, and you're hoping for freedom, peace, power, affluence, and influence, Right? And you are coming here, but you see me as a guy that seems to have very little power, little affluence, seems at this point very little influence, and I don't even, he, I don't even own my own home, right? And so they're looking at him going, wait, wait, if you're coming to set us free, and you're thinking about your life as being free, we're not interested. Right? So they had this idea, and Jesus prepares this platform, presents it, and goes, this is what it looks like, and they're going, oh, that's not actually what we're looking for. Right? We're looking for more entitlements. We're looking to be able to do more, have more. Hey, Jesus, we're actually looking at whether or not what you do can fix our stock market because we have lots of stuff invested there. We want you to fix our 401ks. We want you to fix bigotry that we're seeing in our place. Oh, Jesus, we want you to fix the problems in our community. We want you to fix those other people, right? And so they're coming and going, no, no, Jesus, we thought you came to fix some things for us, but look at your life. You don't have anything. You give it all away and you're homeless. None of us want to be homeless. So if you're telling us you're offering us this great life, candidly, your life doesn't look very great, Jesus. Right? They had this expectation of him. And so he goes, what you're looking for, you're going to say to me, I can't offer you because what you think freedom, being out of captivity and hope are, is different than what I came to offer. So he offers that and he references a really, really old proverb. And then he says this, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable 
in his hometown. In other words, guys, you, you, you can't put your hope in me. You have already prejudged. That's what prejudice is. You've already uh, come up with some conclusions about what I can offer, and you have no interest in following me because you are not interested in what I have to offer. You watch how my family grew up. You watch how I spent my first 30 years, and that seems really desirable for you. So he says, uh, because of kind of what you've experienced, you have no interest, right? This is um, so because you've seen me, because you have those things. It's just hard to accept it, right? You're, you're familiar with, I guess, the, the quip or the statement, familiarity breeds contempt, right? Oh, here, here's how I say it. In fact, my kids quote me now because I say it all the time. Overexposure leads to underappreciation. Uh, every time, like, I grew up on the beach, guys, like, I, uh, on Christmas morning, in fact, after we were done with all of our... Uh, all of our presents, we literally took our tree and walked out to the balcony and threw it down four, you know, four levels, and then we threw it in the dumpster, right? Like, so my balcony overlooked the ocean, right? And Amelia Island, Florida, that's where Julie and I also got married. That's why we, our child's name, Amelia. Like, I grew up there. Like, every single day, I swam in the ocean, and it annoyed me, right? Like, I wanted to go do other things. I wanted to go to the mountains. I wanted to go to the, you know, amusement parks, right? Because I literally had the ocean in front of me, Overexposure to that leads under appreciation. Then I've spent three years out in Montana, right? Snow-capped mountains, you know, wide open spaces. About two years in, lots and lots of snow. Overexposure of it. No, I can't stand snow. You follow me, right? Can't stand it. Don't want it at all, right? Because when you're overexposed to something, you eventually you underappreciate it. Oh, here's one. Remember when you wanted to have kids? You prayed for those kids. God, 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 would you please, please give us kids? And not only did you pray for kids, you, pre- uh, you prayed for healthy kids. Healthy kids run and jump and talk back, right? They have real minds and logic, right? Not very good logic. They don't have a frontal lobe yet, but they have the ability to reason poorly, but they have the ability, right? Remember when you prayed for this, prayed for these relationships, prayed for these kids right now, years in, overexposed to them. You just want them to go to bed? Right? Just stay out of the way. Right? Remember when you prayed that God would give you a spouse? Right? When, it's so funny when you look back at all those things. Like when you were a teenager and you could just not wait to get married. All those things you just couldn't wait. I don't know. I don't know what it takes. Months? Years? Now the very person that you love so much, we're so close to, and could not wait to marry, is actually the one who annoys you the most right now. Right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Overexposure leads to underappreciation. And Jesus is going, hey, hey, you're so, you know who I am. You know my family. You cannot even appreciate what life is available to you. By the way, what's really, really common for us is the very things we pray about the most before when the prayers are answered become the things we complain the most about. Oh, now I've got to clean this big house. Do you remember praying for the house? Oh, I've got to cut my grass. Do you remember when the seed was put down and you couldn't just wait for it to grow? Right? There's just something about this. So Jesus is going, your worldview is so out of whack because you're so consumed with what's next and how you get more power and how something else progresses and you get more things and you get the new job and your 401k goes up and you go up the ladder in your your job. Right? You get the new job. You get the new wife. 
right? You can't wait for your kids to get out of the house. Then you want them to have grandkids. Then eventually you get the grandkids in your house, and you can't wait for your kids to come back from vacation to get their grandkids, right? You got all these different things. These very things that we pray for and hope for and dream about end up being the things that we complain about. And so in this, Jesus is telling them that there is this year available to them, but they can't receive it because what they expect and what they want is not what Jesus came to offer, but what Jesus comes to offer is so much better than anything they could ever expect or want. He's going, guys, you can't get there. You're too closed-minded. You've lost sight of what's available to you. And so watch what it says next. He says that, and hey, guys, you cannot get it. I'm not going to be accepted in my hometown. You are not going to understand this, right? Let's just be honest. Many of you, as you think about voting, this isn't your platform you're looking for. Why? This is very other-centric. And many of us, all of us in some ways, me too, right? This is not judging you. This is us, right? When we think about how we vote, one of the things that we think about very quickly in that is how does this vote benefit me? And what Jesus is coming to say is, guys, you've missed it. Like, it, the whole world slipped upside down. You continue to, if you continue to be self-centered and self-centric, you will never be happy. The happiest people are the most generous people. Right? We know this. We even judge people that way. Think about this. When you go to a funeral, and these people stand up and talk, they don't talk about all the stuff the person had. Yeah, they had a place down in Rehoboth, right? Oh, they had a place down in the Caribbean. Man, they have libraries named after them. They, you don't talk about those things. You don't talk about how much money is in their bank account. Man, when they died, they had billions of dollars. What do people talk about at the funeral? They talk about how generous the person was. In fact, they measure a man's and woman's ability or success on how much they actually gave away. So we know that figuratively. We know that in our mind, but for some reason, Jesus is going, like, look, this is not what you're looking for. I came to declare what's available to you, and they're like, yep, that's not what we're looking for. We thought you were going to have Caesar give us a better tax return. We thought you were going to lower our taxes. Or we thought you were going to increase our taxes to take care of these people and those people, right? We have all these understandings of Jesus going, look, the problem is you came in, we came in with a lot of expectations of what we want Jesus to do, and it never perfectly fits our agenda. And Jesus is going, but the thing is, your agenda will never, ever satisfy you. It will never satisfy you. Getting more stuff will never satisfy you. So he came to offer these things, and he's preaching this message. They don't like it, and watch what they say. Now watch what Jesus says next, because they're all uncomfortable, and he's going to go into a couple crazy stories. And he says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up, three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So Jesus is going to now preach. So the way that which a synagogue was set up, and, and there was kind of a guy who ever saw it, did the order of service. Talked about it a little bit in the overtime this week, if you listen to that. And so there would be seven different people who'd read the law, the books of Moses. One person would then read... Uh, uh, the prophets. So this is Jesus, as we can assume that Jesus got the, the book of the prophets, they hand him a scroll, he reads it. And then there were two other people. There was the ones who interpreted the scriptures, and then the one who preached the sermon. Okay? Uh, sometimes there wasn't an interpreter, uh, because it was kind of clear and to the point. 
And sometimes, so they just go to the sermon. Sometimes the person who was the interpreter also did the sermon. What was interesting, they would stand up to preach this, uh, to read the word. So they know that's from God. Then they would sit down and then they would discuss it. In other words, they wanted to clearly differentiate between God's word and a human's world. No, a word. So what's interesting is Jesus could have stood, stood up the whole time. I don't know, if, but it says he st- sat down, discussed this. So he sits down. They all make these observations. And what we can assume is Jesus is offering the interpretation and the sermon. So it goes right into this. So this is Jesus' sermon. And so when Jesus is preaching, he's going to talk about something really crazy. So they're listening. He said, you won't accept me, but let me, offer, let me offer you some commentary to why. And what he does is he goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and he talks about this guy named Elijah. So let me get Elijah up here. I'm going to take these guys down. They're of no consequence or use for us at this point. And so Elijah. Now, the Jews, the, the synagogue sitters, the ones who they're like, yeah, we love Elijah. That's our prophet. He, he talked truth to power, right? This is, this is Elijah. So he talks about Elijah, and he goes, now here's the interesting. You, uh, so, but in truth, I tell you, this is verse 25. There are many widows in Israel, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. So what he's talking about here is he's going, hey, in the days of Elijah, you'll know the story. Uh, uh, they would have. Maybe you don't. Let me remind you that there was a really evil king. His name was Ahab. And he had a really evil girlfriend slash wife, Queen Jezebel. Now, these guys, they were terrible human beings, and they worshipped this false god named Baal. And Baal was responsible for a couple of really important things. Pe- Baal was responsible for precipitation, right? In an agrarian society, water really matters. And so they would pray to this god who couldn't respond to them because guess what? He's not real. But they prayed to him and asked him to provide water to them so that their crops could grow, their livestock could eat, and they could flourish as a kingdom. And so they would worship. Jezebel was kind of the leader of this, this, this prophet, uh, this god Baal. And there'd be hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands of prophets who would stand up and offer prophecy and understanding to this false god. Right? Let me get Baal back. Sorry. And so uh, they, would, they would worship this. Now, one of the things that God did is going, these guys are offering their hope and putting their stock and placing all their joy in this God named Baal who does not actually exist. So God tells Elijah, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to go tell Jezebel and Ahab there is going to be a season, years, where there's going to be no water. In other words, you're not going to have any water and Baal is not going to be able to provide so you can see that Baal is fake and you should not put your hope in a false god or a false policy or a false government. None of those things can fulfill you. And so he says, hey, you're going to lose that stuff. And so the um, water stops running. Now, because Elijah's the messenger, he goes and tells him and God tells him to kind of go off into the distance for a while. So he goes out into the wilderness. Some really interesting stories of ravens, not eagles, that brought him food. Really interesting that God uses a raven, not an eagle. No, it's devastating. It's in the scriptures. Brings him food, all this kind of stuff. But eventually, uh, so there's water, 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 all this kind of stuff. And then the water dries out. And then God leads Elijah to this place called, let me find it, Sidon. Sidon, where are you, Sidon? I don't know where Sidon is, but he leads them to a place called Sidon, a little bitty community, right? Now, what's interesting about Sidon is Sidon was Jezebel's hometown. You got it? So Jesus is talking about hometown, talking about a hometown. His hometown people are not receiving him, understanding. So they say, like, let me tell you about another hometown, but let me tell you about it from a person you hate, Jezebel. So God sends Elijah to this town, Sidon, where Jezebel's from. In fact, that was where her daddy 
grew up. His name was Eth Baal. That literally means Baal is God and king and Lord, right? And so God sends Elijah to this town. And they're going, why in the world would any godly man ever go to that broken place? And while God sends him there, he sends them to meet with this widow of Zarephath. So God sends this person there. Got it? So Elijah is now a widow, and she is in uh, this uh, meeting with this widow. And so what happens is, while this is happening, um, Elijah shows up and meets this lady, and he says to her, Hey, I'm hungry. Would you give me some bread? Got it? Really simple. Now, the back story is, this lady has no provider, has no money, no income, no husband, and she's trying to take care of her little boy, or her boy, whatever age it is, right? And she knows what's in her cupboard. You know what's in her cupboard? A little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. In fact, it's just enough flour and just enough oil for one more meal. Now, the scriptures tell us that she's already come to the conclusion that her and her boy are about to die. What's her plan? To finally have one good meal, one more good meal that she could enjoy with her son before they starve to death. You get this, right? Starve to death. This is horrific. Like, this is far beyond what many of us have ever experienced, most of us, right? And so she's about to die. She has no food, and all of a sudden, God sends this guy to this lady. Now, she grew up in Sidon. She would have been probably a Baal worshiper. She is not a Christ follower. She doesn't believe that the Messiah is going to come. She is not one who worshiped Yahweh and God Elijah there. And he says, you know what's really crazy? There would have been many, many, many widows in your country, in Israel, who also needed food, right? Because when water stops flowing, crops start, stop growing, and when crops stop growing, the food distribution stops going out. And who gets hit the hardest than that? The least of these. So Jesus is talking about the least of these and the oppressed, the ones who are captive. And Elijah goes to one, but he's not bringing her something. He's asking something from the oppressed. This is so crazy. So what's this lady going to do? Is she going to go, nope, one more meal? I got one more meal? Like, my boy and I got to eat it? No, here's what she does. She comes to the conclusion, rationally and reasonably, which I'll hope one day we get to. She goes, either I eat one more meal with me and my son, and then we die. Or this prophet of God, who speaks on behalf of God, who has access to the God of the universe, come to me. And if this, if this God is real, if this is actually true, that this is available to me, then one of two options I have is I give him the food. He eats it and we die. Or I give him to the food. God does something miraculous. In other words, this is a poor person. This is a person with no other options. So what does she do? She actually offers it to him. Right? She says this in her mind, right? What else do I have to lose? Right? Here's the crazy thing about thinking about it that way. Like, the one thing that we see in our country right now is it's a mess. And I told you this when we started the series that literally told you um, our, our country is sick. It's sick. Watch the debates. Read the news. Our country is sick, guys. And the reason our country is sick is because we're sick. There is something wrong and broken with us, right? It's just, it's just vitriol everywhere. And you know it and I know it. No matter who wins this election, our country is not going to be healed. 
Right now, all of us have at least come to that conclusion. This next president is not going to be the one to solve this, right? Our putting our bread and our oil in one of these two people, well, we should place our vote, is not going to solve this. So at least we can finally say, and it's been a long time probably coming for us, because we've been the land of prosperity and freedom. At least we can probably come to the point of going, I'm not going to put my hope there, I'm not going to put my hope there. In other words, what do we actually have to lose in placing all of our hope in Jesus? What do you have to lose? Not like the hokey pokey, but literally all your hope. Like double on it. Like put the sign in your yard. Declare the goodness of who God is. Worship him. Read his book. Lead and serve people the way he does. What do you have to lose? At this point, what do you have to lose? Right? We all know that control is fleeting and an illusion. We have no idea what's going to happen to our stock market. We have no idea what's going to happen to our nation. And this is not fear-mongering, right? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, this seems to be a prime time that we can go, well, we can try to survive a few more days, a few more years, enjoy a few more years, those things. And we can. Or we can place all of our hope and all of our trust in Jesus. And so when Jesus goes, hey, look, you're all about control and influence, Nazareth. Let me tell you about a lady who literally surrendered everything she had. And what happened is, yeah, Elijah made food. And then that yeast and that oil never stopped flowing. And things got really, really good. And then there were moments of great prosperity for her. And then her son dies. What? I thought she gave, put all her hope in Jesus, all her hope in Yahweh. She trusted Elijah. And the bread started flowing, right? The oil started flowing. And then, because control was still an illusion, her son dies. And she reaches out to Elijah and she goes, what's going on? And Elijah comes and does something weird. He like lays on top and prays for the resurrection of this boy, right? As a foreshadowing of what God can offer us, that death can't even destroy us. So what do we have to lose? And he brings, this, or God brings through Elijah this boy back to life. Why? To remind this widow that God really is God and he still is in charge. And whether it's a good day where things are flowing or it's a bad day where people are dying, God is still God. And so Jesus is going, let me remind you of that story. You remember that story? You didn't like that story because this is a lady who grew up in a town you hate underneath the regime of some really, really broken people. And God made himself known there and he poured out his blessing there. Why? Because she literally said, what do I have to lose? In other words, she genuinely knew her condition. She knew her condition. And so he's going, oh, you might not get that yet. And you're, you're like, I'm not a widow. We got food. This isn't my experience. So now he's going to continue. Ready for this? And then there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Got it? So now he's going to introduce us to a new person, Elisha. He's like, hey, you remember Elisha? Elisha is one of your boys. You love Elisha. Elisha was Elijah's, you know, successor. He was godly and does many godly things. And people sought him out and he would point people back to God and he would declare the goodness of who God is. And people were repenting and placing their trust in him, right? He said, remember him? He said, do you remember what was going on during Elijah's time? There was all sorts of ailments. And at the highest level was leprosy. And it was highly contagious and considered highly immoral. So people who were lepers were literally just cast out. And it was hopeless. They could not find hope in it. There was no vaccine. So what happened is they just were ostracized out. And he goes, there are many lepers in Israel. That's your boys. That's your girls, right, Nazareth? In the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed. None of them got hope. They died lepers. They walked into their life, got kicked out of the synagogues, and died alone. 
couldn't have a job. Right? Hey, Nazareth, remember those people? Those are your people. Many of you think about your great, 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 great grandparents. Those are your people, right? And none of them got healed. Could you hear like their contempt and that? How dare you bring up those people? None of them got healed. And none of them were cleansed. But only Naaman and Syria. Now, Naaman, this is really messed up. He was a commander of the army in Syria that literally, in the middle of all this leprosy and all sorts of other brokenness in the world and all this oppression that was in captivity that the Jews were in, this guy named Naaman, he, led a, he was a commander. The king loved him. He led an army who came into Israel and raided and destroyed it. So the fact that Jesus is bringing up this guy is highly offensive to these religious people who are expecting Jesus to come and give them their dog and pony show, do a couple of miracles, give them more influence, and give them back the, the kingdom and the land from Rome. And he goes, you remember Naaman? Naaman, the one who raided and pillaged your towns? All your people weren't healed, except for only Naaman Syria. And you're going, well, what's this about? Well, really, really important, uh, Naaman... You see, in the scriptures, had massive leprosy, right? You got a couple things on his face there. And he tried everything. Here's the thing about Naaman. Naaman was different than the widow in Zarephath who had no resources. She had no resources. So it was easy for her to come to the conclusion, well, what do I have to lose? Naaman had everything to lose because he had all the resources at, in front of him. He had all the power, all the influence, all the affluence. He had everything. And he had the support and the underwriting of the king, right? In fact, in the scriptures, the king gives Naaman infinite amount of resources to go and find some healing for his, his skin condition. But as much as he searches, he cannot find hope. He cannot find a solution. So he is poor in spirit. He is out of options. Now, one of the interesting things is Naaman, because he's conquered in religious towns, as a horrible human being, by the way. He, um, he took in uh, children and turned them into slaves and servants for his Syrian kingdom, right? And one of them was this Hebrew girl take a man that was a servant for his wife and one day he's talking about not being able to find any solutions to his problems and the Hebrew girl who's a slave and a servant looks to Naaman and goes my God can heal you in fact if you would go see this prophet he would bring healing to you Naaman because he's come to the conclusion that he has no other options kind of knows his condition goes, what do I have to lose? So he sets out on a journey to go talk to this guy named Elisha. You know, when he gets there, he's taking his, you know, his big, he's got all these chariots filled with resources because he thinks he's going to pay for his fixing, right? He's got enough influence and affluence. And he gets to Elijah's house and he goes, and he goes to talk to Elisha, knocks on the door or whatever it is, and Elisha doesn't even come down. He sends some servant to tell Naaman what to do. And Naaman is so angry about it, right? Like, how dare you serve? Does he not know who I am? I am Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, right? Filled, filled, not only with leprosy, but with pride. Filled with pride. Going, how dare you? I am the king. I'm in charge. The king has given me authority over this. I have all the power. How dare you do that? He goes off and because well, I wouldn't last even talk to me. I can't believe that. And he didn't. He, not only did he not talk to me, he told me to do something crazy. He told me to go put my body to immerse myself in the Jordan River. Does he not know the Jordan River is disgusting? It's filled with feces. Does he not know that? He literally, we have cleaner rivers in Syria. Like, this is just foolish. 
Right? And he doesn't even tell me to do it once. He tells me to do it seven times. Like, really? That's what he wants me to do? This is nuts. I'm not doing it, right? And one of his servants, one of his, you know, assistants goes, Hey, Naaman, what do you have to lose? Anything else working out for you? Is your life right now getting you fixed? Is your power and affluence and all your money and all your things? Is any of that fixing you, Naaman? What do you have to lose? And so Naaman, not because he believes in this stuff, but knows his condition and exhausted all other options, which, by the way, is where you find the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, there's only two routes to God. It's humility and humiliation. Most of us, if not all of us, have found God in the moments of deep despair and humiliation going, there is no other hope, and we cry out to God. So that's where we find Naaman. And he, can't, he doesn't believe he can fix himself. He has no hope. He is, the, he is the embodiment of all this stuff. And so what does he do? He goes and dips himself in the water. Goes down, comes back up one time. Guess what happened? Absolutely nothing. Nothing happened. You would think at that point he goes... This is, this is ridiculous. Nothing. Not a single bit. It's not fading. It's not doing anything. There's been no movement. And again, the conversation is, well, what do you have to lose? You know your condition, Naaman. Nothing else is working. What do you have to lose? Guess what? Nothing. Dips again. Nothing. Dips again. Nothing. Some of you know that experience, right? You keep, God, will you? Will you? Will you? I thought you were going to. You have it. Nothing. Four times. Five times. Nothing. Six times. Nothing. Seventh time. And you see this throughout the scriptures. It's the number of perfection. It's perfect. You see it with Elijah they, when the clouds come to bring the rain back. You see it in multiple places. It's the, you know, it's the number of completion. On the seventh time, he comes up and he is completely, completely healed. He's not a good guy. He had a rough, rough life. But all of a sudden, he had liberty. He was pardoned from his own captivity. Why? Why? Because he knew his condition and he came to the conclusion that there was nothing he was going to do to be able to fix himself. That's why. So Jesus says to these people, do you not get it? Do you not get it? These are two people who literally were not in my kingdom. They didn't go to the synagogue. They didn't even know who Yahweh were. It was. And at that point, they finally go, God, we just want you. Would you come to us? Would you speak to us? We need healing. What do we have to lose? We know our condition. And both of them, they surrendered their pride surrendered their pride and submitted themselves to Jesus, submitted themselves to God, and both of them found healing. And you would think the synagogue folks would go, oh, that makes so much sense, that makes so much sense. In other words, Jesus is going, do you not get this? Like, you hear this and you're so mad because you think it's about other people and you're so self-centered. But here's the crazy thing. What Jesus wanted them to know is, do you not understand? You're the one who needs good news because you're poor. Hey, Josh, do you not understand? You're the one who needs pardon because you're a sinner and you're held captive by your own decisions and your own thoughts, right? Hey, Josh, do you not understand that it's you who can't see right? You're the one who needs sight? Hey, Josh, hey, church, hey, synagogue, hey, Nazareth, do you not understand that you're the one who needs to be set free because you are oppressed? You've had an enemy lie to you your whole life, and you feel so much shame, right? And so many different issues, from the size of your body to the things that you eat to the things that you say to what's wrong with your teeth to what's wrong with your skin. Really, those things determine our life. Do you understand you've just been lied to because it's actually you and I who are oppressed? Do you understand, Nazareth Church, do you understand that what God is actually saying here is, this year the Lord that I'm declaring is for you. It's available. 
You would think they'd finally, all of a sudden, they would have gotten sight, and they'd go, oh, we get it now. But they don't. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Wrath, don't tell us what our condition is. We know what we want, we know what we need, and it's not you. Right? And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their, the town was built. So they bring him up to this cliff. So they throw him down the cliff. He literally points out these folks who found complete healing because they dropped their pride and they can't see it because they're too self-centered and unaware. How can you be so self-centered and self-unaware? And those tend to always go together. And so they want to actually just murder him, the whole congregation. Could you imagine that? Everybody being filled with wrath and taking that place. But watch what it says. But passing through their midst, he ran away. So funny, because they showed up wanting to see a miracle. And at the end, they get one. He just literally disappears from them. But they can't see it. They can't see it. See it. First time preaching in Nazareth, he comes and offers them something, and they cannot see it. And as far as I can tell, they never do. They're so self-centered and self-focused and so unaware. And the, this passage, guys, this passage is for us. Timeless, timely, and it has everything to do with our pride. And our pride has everything to do with our lack of awareness, right? We are so unaware, we do not know our condition. You want to hear something crazy? Uh, this is the second time I've preached this passage in the last 52 weeks. In fact, exactly 52 weeks ago. So this is a bookend. I read this passage. It was week six of the Jesus Creed. And I read it. Read it. We talked through it, so maybe some of you remember it. And I, candidly, that was the inception of, uh, excuse my language here, the, the year of hell for myself and our family. The last year and one day, boy, I cannot wait to talk to you about God's faithfulness and share with you all the things. But the last 52 weeks, particularly the first six months of that inception were horrific. And it's so interesting that the bookends of this message, the bookends of this passage come and those things, and you see what God is saying at the end of it? He's saying, let me read it to you one more time. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Watch this to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I believe that. I believe there's this awareness that I needed, family needed, I think our church needed. I believe there's a real awareness that we have to get that we have a condition and we have to know our condition and we have to stop trying to be self-reliant and lean into our own creativity and our own schemes and our own plans and our own ideas and all these things that we think somehow if we get it on the whiteboard, we'll figure it out and we'll solve it. Like somehow God is expecting us to solve the problems in America and the problems in our community. Do you understand how arrogant that is? And for the last year, there's just been this chiseling and this breaking down of so many arrogant pieces of not realizing that this passage was actually telling me that I was the one who needed to be part of I was the one who was captive. I was the one whose eyes needed to be opened, right? Our church, our church was the one who was oppressed, right? It wasn't just the people out there. It was all of us who needed to be set free. So a year, bookends of going, hey, the solution to America is not that we vote the right candidate because we need to place a vote in the candidate, but we cannot place our hope in that candidate. The solution for us is actually to finally acknowledge we have a condition and come to the conclusion that we have nothing left to lose. 
And then, then only then do we lean in fully to Jesus and go, Jesus, you alone are good. You alone are our hope. Be honest. How often do you pray about our nation and election? How often do you fast? How often do you read the scriptures and ask God to just clearly speak to you and dwell with you? How often do you ask God to rule and reign in our community, to take over what was taken, to take back what was taken over by the enemy? How often do we do those things? No, we read the news. We read Twitter. We follow up all those things. No, we cannot solve this. So that's why this whole series, well, it's good to kind of think about it and think about our vote. The reality is our only option is to understand our condition as Americans, our condition as individuals, and place our full hope in Jesus. So how do we place our hope in Jesus? That's the question. And here's the best part. You don't. You don't. You don't place your hope in Jesus. You're not even capable of that. You are so desolate and so broken and so oppressed, you actually can't. You keep trying. God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to read. I'm going to do those things. You actually can't do it. Which is why once a month and maybe one day we'll get to more often, we participate in this thing called communion. And I want you to hear this because what we do and what we're about to do right now is so much more significant than we're just going to eat some bread, drink some juice for us or wine if you're at home or whatever it is you choose. It's so much more significant than just that. This is, in this moment, we get to pause together, guys. And I apologize for rushing through this so many times just because we're so late into the service with such long teaching. But this is our moment to actually pause. And what the scriptures tell us is that when we do this, he is fully present with us. Remember, I told you, you can't place your hope in Jesus because you don't have the capability of it. But guess what happens? Guess what Jesus offers to do? Instead of placing our hope in him, he first comes and places himself in us. You see, Jesus comes and dwells within us, which sounds so crazy. And I go, what else do you have to lose? This is like dipping yourself in water. Why, why not? Right? This is like giving Jesus your last loaf of bread. Why not? Like, what else do you have to lose? Like, there's something about this moment that is so much more than just let's do the object lesson. That's great, Jesus, you died for us. Like, we invite Jesus' presence into us. And as his presence comes into us, then he gives us the power and the authority to place ourselves back into him. It all starts with him. It says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He gives us the gift of faith. He gives us the gift of obedience. And so it can't start with our self-reliance. We can't white-knuckle our relationship with Jesus. There's something significant that happens when we invite him into us. So I don't want us to miss this moment. And maybe for the very first time, online, out in the parking lot, in your car, right here, for the first time you are ready to go, I want his presence with me. And Jesus was so gracious to show us how that happened. And right before, right before he's going to get arrested, he's going to get captured, he's going to be oppressed, he's going to be put in bondage, he's going to be stripped naked and beaten and then put on a cross. And he's going to do something so significant that he's going to cover all of our sin and all of our shame. And he's going to do everything to give us the option to be in the Lord's favor forever. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, right? The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God, his favor is eternal life. And right before he does that, he pauses for a second. And he's hanging out with his disciples. And he has a regular meal. They've done this multiple times, probably part of a Passover meal, and he would have grabbed the bread, 
And for you, what I want you to do is just kind of peel this top part off. Sorry that COVID, I want to be honoring and complicated. It's complicated, but still Jesus' presence available to us. He takes the bread and he holds it up to him and he goes, hey guys, I want you to see this. You've got to see this. You've got to see this. This is not an object lesson, guys. This is more than that. There's something significant. He's offering his presence to us. Right? He's offering to that. And he goes, hey, I want you to see this. This is my body and it was broken for you. Right? So you don't just live in shame because all that's covered. I've paid the price. Quit trying to earn your own salvation. Quit beating yourself up. You are not responsible to fix yourself. Do you not see this? This is my body. You want my presence. It's not, it doesn't come with your performance. And he gives it to him, and he breaks it, and he goes, look, look, I want you to take this. I want you to receive my gift. I want you to receive what I did for you. I don't want you to do it anymore. I want you to receive how you were set free. I want you to receive that you were oppressed. I want you to receive that you're a captive. But now it's available to him. He literally goes, my body's going to be broken for you. And he gives it to him. He says, no, eat this. Receive my presence into you. B, this is where it says we can do all things in Christ. Well, how does that happen? He comes into us. He imputes himself into us. And I know it sounds crazy, but don't you think it was crazy for Naaman to dip himself in a dirty water? Don't you think it was crazy for the widow of Zarephath to give all of her bread? What if this is true? What do you have to lose? Receive Jesus' body, his presence into you. Would you join me in that right now? And then he would have been with his disciples. And he would have been talking to them. And he would have gathered them. And they would have understood this because throughout human history, especially in war-torn countries, everybody knows the way that new territory is taken is always through shed blood. We all know that. And so Jesus, wanting to offer his legitimate presence to us, new territory in us. By the way, he wants to take new territory in us before he ever wants to take territory through us, right? So the first step is receiving his presence, having a spirit come and dwell in us, right? So when it says the, the spirit of the Lord was on him, here's what that means. When we receive his presence, guess what we get with it? His spirit. I know, I know it's so crazy, but what do you have to lose? You can enjoy and have his presence. And Jesus going, look, look, this is my blood that was shed for you. You mean every part of you is covered by me? Every part is now my territory with my name on it. You are covered, and you're covered for all eternity. There is nothing you could ever do to take away this. There's nothing you could ever do to take away my love. Right? Heights nor depths, demons, enemies, countries. Nothing could ever take it. And he gives us because you can receive my presence. And as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And with you and I enjoy his presence. What I love about this moment, it's so beyond human comprehension. And there's this neat thing that happens is not only do we get his presence with us in every part of us, he also is uniting his church, his universal global church. Across the globe today, people are taking the bread and drinking the wine and enjoying God's presence and communing with him. And, you know, there's this moment when Elijah has his, He's now defeated the prophets of Baal. This is where the rain comes back and Jezebel wants to kill him. And he goes and he runs and he's hiding in the wilderness and he's pouting and he's going, God, why me? Why me? There's nobody else. And God comes and says, Elijah, where are you? Where are you? 
Like, what are you doing? And Elijah keeps saying the statement, I am the only one. And God's going, no, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. Throughout human history, there's been an army of people who have my presence and my spirit. And so what I want you to know, all over our church, all over our community, all over our world, there are people with Jesus' presence. He is not done. He is still at work. And so what I want to think about as we sing this last song, is I want you to think about this God who makes incredible promises, and he is faithful from age to age, from time to time. That God is in this moment. He's in this election. He is in our country, but better than all those things, he is in our hearts and souls, and that's what's available to us. So let me pray for us, and let's sing this song together as we close. Oh, Jesus, great is your faithfulness. And God, I confess that I don't understand receiving fully your presence. Like, I don't understand how Jordan River's water cleanses leprosy. I am convinced there's something in it that has to do with our obedience and our trust and our faith in you. So God, in this moment, when our faith of believing you are God and you are real collide with your faithfulness, God, would those two things intersect for our church this week? Would those two things intersect in our lives? Would our faith and your faithfulness, God, would they collide? And when we see and experience both in our lives and our families and in our community and in our country and our world, God, would we see, because as a result of our faith and your faithfulness, kind of interceding, intersecting, colliding, God, would we see supernatural, miraculous things happen that only you could do. The same kind of things that the widow of Zarephath experienced, that Naaman experienced, that Elijah and Elisha experienced. God, would we experience that in our faith, meeting up with your faithfulness. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you join me as we sing together?